scripture, though, before uh, you don't need to stand up yet. I'll have you stand in a moment. But um, I did want to open our time together in prayer for a very significant day in the life of many of us. Actually, I'd say the life of all of us. It affected our entire community. Uh, Today is November 7th, which means tomorrow is November 8th, the third anniversary since the campfire. Um, Some of you guys in here right now relocated to Chico because you lost your homes in paradise. This morning, I was up with our paradise congregation who those folks, either their home survived or they've rebuilt up on the ridge. But the reality is that the campfire, even three years later, continues to affect us all um, in big ways and small ways and in between ways. It's something that even though the rest of the world might have moved past it in the new cycle, we have not. And so I want to ask you to pray with me, just an acknowledgement of the anniversary that'll be tomorrow, but also kind of this both and that I think we find ourselves in. In one sense, I wanna thank God, I wanna hit my knees and give thanksgiving for the way in which he has sustained the ridge. And people that I love that live on the ridge, that I serve as a pastor, how they've rebuilt homes, that they've reinvested in the city, that we've seen things come back, which have been beautiful and awesome. But on the other hand, I also want to ask the Lord to have mercy on all that is still so painful and hard. Not only for people that live on the ridge, but I know for some of you that had to move, that lost your homes, that lost where you grew up, that... There's days where it just blindsides you how much it hurts having to be in a new town and having to remember all the stress of the fire. So let's pray. I'm not exactly even sure what I'm gonna pray, but I'm just gonna ask you if you would to bow your heads with me and let's take this to the Lord. Father God, we, we're at a loss for words sometimes in moments like this. There's so many thoughts and emotions and differing sentiments about the fire. I know for some tomorrow will be a day of many tears and hurt and remembrance. For others, maybe it'll be a day where there's this distant aching, but not really a a way to understand or say why. Father, our grief takes all different sorts of forms, but no matter where we find ourselves tomorrow as we remember the day of the fire, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to give comfort, to give peace, to give hope. Father God, I pray that we could look back on these three years and see your faithful hand. I pray that we would be able to look back and and see the way in which you've taken something so destructive and so harmful, and for many in here have used it for our good. I pray that we'd be able to thank you for the way in which the ridge is still alive. People there, schools there, businesses there, churches like ours even that are there in meeting. God, we give thanks for that. But Lord, at the same time, we pray for your mercy and we pray for your continuing work on the ridge. At the same time that we give thanks for what's happening there, we we have to acknowledge that there's still deep loss. 
There's still large swaths of land that are just cleared and empty. Still businesses that are shuttered up. Still dark streets with hardly any neighbors. Still schools that have very few children and teachers. Lord God, please bring revival to paradise. And I pray that we, as, as good neighbors in Chico, would be able to love and serve and care for and pray and just be there for these friends of ours, some of whom are fellow church members that live on the ridge. God, we ask it and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining me in prayer. And uh, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 4, verse 16 through verse 25. Sort of a long text today. And, and by the way, too, um, there's going to be a lot of pronouns in here, a lot of he's, that because we haven't read, or it's been a few weeks since we read the verses that came before, we have to remember that the he is referring to Abraham. So in case you're confused about that, whenever it says he in this passage, that's who it's talking about, Abraham. Uh, I probably didn't need to say that, but here we go. Verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord and who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. We ask it and pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Man, thanks for standing. You guys can go ahead and be seated. What time do I have here? 4.47. Oh, actually, I'm glad I checked that. I've got a reminder here to let you know that communion cups. We're going to take communion after the sermon tonight. But if you would, the empty cups, we actually have a container for the empty cups that you can take on your way out. That is on the table right out there. So we don't have to go and pick up a bunch of empty cups on the pews afterwards. Sorry, that's uh, a deacon announcement there. So take that with you. And, oh, there's a, a clap from, thank you, Marion. <laughs> All right, my friends. Abraham, he is, well, he's who we're talking about again tonight. He's been like our best friend 
for three weeks running now. If you've been to church these last three weeks, you're probably like, man, this Vespers, all they talk about is Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. Well, it's true. He's kind of like a key figure in this part of the scripture that we're going through. Romans chapter 4, it's been all about him. Or more accurately, it's been all about how his relationship with God was built not on his good works or on his law keeping or his obedience. Abraham's relationship with God was built on his belief, his trust in God. So we, we have this phrase that keeps coming up over and over again. Actually, part of it came up in our text multiple times tonight where it says in Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is said in Genesis. It's said again in Romans here in this chapter. The point is Abraham's belief is what makes him righteous before God. Now, the question that we haven't talked about much so far, um, we've talked a lot about the implications of Abraham's belief and him being righteous before God, but we haven't talked much about what that word believe means in the Bible. It probably seems like a really simple word, like believe. We use it in conversation every single day. We know what that means, but when you really sort of dig in and begin to ask questions of it, it kind of is a little complicated. What did Abraham believe that made him righteous before God? It says he believed in God, but does that mean that he just believed that God existed? That's a lot of times when we say, I believe in God, what we're talking about. Oh, as opposed to being an atheist, I'm a person that believes that there is a God, that he exists, that he's real. That's one way of thinking about what believe in God means there. Or we could maybe go a little further than that and say, no, it's not just believing in God's existence, but it's believing things about God. So I'm mentally agreeing that God is good, that God is just, that God is kind. That's what it means to believe in God. It's just sort of a, a mental assent to those doctrines, so to speak. It's another way of looking at it. The final way I'll throw out there is kind of different than those other two, and it's having to do with the promises of God. God makes promises to his people. He made promises to Abraham, and to say that Abraham believed those promises, we could just get sort of the sense that he sort of casually agreed, a.k.a. he shrugged. God's like, hey, Abraham, I'm going to do great things for you, and Abraham's like, yeah, okay, whatever. Can I go back to doing what I was doing? He believed. He said okay. He was down for it. But it kind of came in the form of a shrug more than anything else. So when the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, are those kind of beliefs what it's talking about? You tell me. No. Thank you. Thank goodness. Sometimes as a preacher, I... Keep questions rhetorical. I don't let you answer them because I'm really afraid of what you might say. I just have to resign on the spot if you said yes. No, that's not what belief is meaning there. The belief that Abraham had and the belief that the Bible speaks about is something way deeper than just believing God exists. It's something way deeper than just agreeing to some mental ideas about God. It's, it's life. 
It's relationship. It's trust. It's embrace. It's what the Bible usually uses the word faith to describe. It's saving faith. It's authentic faith. That's what it means when it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, you might think that I'm just speculating there, that I'm just kind of filling in the gaps and giving my theory on what his belief means here, but I'm actually not. Because we see in the life of Abraham himself how his belief was this faith, not just an agreement that God existed. And in particular, we see it in the story of how he reacts to God telling him that he's going to have a child, a son. And in that reaction, in that way that Abraham sort of shows this, this posture of belief and faith, we learn a lot about the kind of belief that he had. So the text that we read today was actually all about this. Paul, in retelling the story of Abraham, he hones in, in particular, on this moment in Abraham's life where God had made these promises to him, and in particular, the promise of having a child. Sometimes that having a child piece is sort of lost in the mix because the main promises made to Abraham were very big, broad, universal promises. So God told Abraham that he was going to give him many descendants, so many descendants that they would be like the, the stars in the sky or the, the grains of sand on the sea or the coast, you know, the beach, whatever. You get the picture. So descendants, that's one of the promises that Abraham is given. And then God tells them that those descendants that I give you, I am going to commit myself to be their God and they will be my people. And then finally, God says, as I bless this people, they in turn will be a blessing to all the families of the earth, all the nations. Those are the three big promises that God gives Abraham. But of course, every single one of those is contingent on what? Him having a child. You don't get many descendants like the stars in the heavens. You don't get all the families that bless the nations of the earth unless you start with having a baby. And up to that point, that had been a problem for Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Sarah had been unable to have children in the time that they had been together. And at this point, when God comes to make the promise, she was still unable to have children. And not only that, Abraham and Sarah were both, well, they were old. And you probably feel like that was rude, me saying that. I could have said something like, oh, they were advanced in years or something. But hey, let me tell you what's rude. Look at verse 19 of the text that we read tonight. It says, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. (laughs) How rude is that? I told the folks up in paradise this morning, I was like, When Abraham saw Paul in heaven, he probably was like, dude, what the heck? (laughs) Why are you talking about me like that? That's rude. Me saying that they're old is not. I I swear, every time I read this passage, I just start cackling. It's just so funny to me that his body was as good as dead. He was close to 100 years old. So 
His wife is infertile. He is well advanced in years, and so is she. They have never had been successful in having children. And God says to them, I'm making you all these promises, and they're all contingent upon you having a baby. The promise God made to Abraham was, humanly speaking, impossible. And I don't want you to miss that. That if you consider all the circumstances, if you consider all the factors, we would say that this can't happen. It can't be. And all those huge promises that God had made about the descendants, about him being their covenant God, about them being a a blessing to all the nations of the earth, all of it lived or died based on Abraham having a child, which seemed impossible. And so now, with that in mind, Let's come back to that key statement. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. His belief was in something that, humanly speaking, couldn't happen. And he trusted God for that. That's why I am able to say with confidence that Abraham's belief was not just mere belief that God existed. That his belief wasn't just believing certain doctrines about God. That's why I'm able to say with confidence that his belief certainly wasn't just a shrug, saying like, yeah, whatever, yeah, I I believe. Uh, Can I get back to what I was doing now? No. His belief was something far deeper than all of that. It was the word we used before, saving faith, authentic faith. And if you paid close attention through the passage that we read tonight, I know it was kind of a long one, but you'll notice that at the top of it, the word belief is being used. And by we get to the end of it, all of a sudden belief is being subbed out for the word faith. Almost as if Paul wants to make sure you realize that this belief isn't just generic mere belief. It's something far deeper. I want to use the rest of my time, which isn't a lot, but I've got a little bit of time left to to give us some broad strokes of what saving faith really looks like. And we see it in the life of Abraham. And in particular, I think we see some contrast. We see in the life of Abraham um, some things that he did not do or that shapes that his belief did not take. And because of that, we're gonna be able to understand what it was. Contrast helps us sometimes define things by saying what it's not. And so that's kind of what I want to do tonight. So for instance, saving faith is enduring, not momentary. I know I should have a slide for this, but I don't have slides this week other than these. So you're just going to have to listen, maybe even write down um, whatever you got to do. But saving faith is enduring, not momentary. The second one we're going to look at is that saving faith is resilient, not fragile. And finally, the last one, maybe the most fun one, is saving faith is rude, not polite. Uh, That might be the most intriguing to some of you guys, but I'm going to save it for last. It's an old preacher's trick. Save the most interesting one for last. So let's start off the first one. It's enduring, not momentary. Uh, Look back with me. I think verse 20 is where I want to go. Verse 20 said this, no unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. 
So a couple of words in those sentences there, waver. Abraham did not waver. And then also, he grew strong in his faith. Both of those words imply that there was a waiting period that Abraham had to sit through. Because nobody makes a big deal about not wavering in your belief or growing strong in your faith and belief if, like, all you had to do is wait for 30 minutes. You know, I was at the DMV for 30 minutes. I did not waver. You know, no, nobody says that. You say that if there is a long period of time between the thing that God promised and his fulfillment. And in fact, if some of you guys know the story of Abraham from Genesis, you might, you might know how long he waited between when God promised him a son and when the son Isaac finally came. Does anybody know how long it took? I'll help you. 25 years. A long time. It's 25 years that Abraham believed the promise of God and waited and waited and waited until it was finally fulfilled. And the reason that I'm pointing that out to you guys is because I want you to realize that Abraham's belief, it wasn't momentary. It wasn't just a snapshot. A single moment in his life where he said, yeah, I'm really emotionally taken over by what God has said and I'm gonna believe him. And then that belief didn't affect him, anything outside of that. No, his belief was something that happened each and every day over the course of 25 years as he consistently leaned in to what God had promised him. Sometimes in counseling situations, when I'm with people talking about forgiveness, one of the things we talk about how, is how our culture presents forgiveness as this sort of one-time decision. Like, I decided to forgive that person on Tuesday, and I never thought about it again. That's usually not how forgiveness works. Forgiveness is a choice you make every day. How about every hour of every day? You constantly are leaning in to like, yes, I'm forgiving, I'm forgiving. And not to say that there aren't big sort of milestone turning point moments, but that's usually how it happens. And Abraham's belief, his faith was like that too. Over the course of 25 years, he is having to choose every day to lean into what God had promised. His belief was enduring, not momentary. It wasn't this momentary decision that's here today and gone tomorrow. Now, there's a lot of ways that we could sort of apply that. I imagine everybody in here has their, sort of, their own sort of grid that they've put that in, but I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna share with you one that's sort of big for me. It's a little bit of a hobby horse for me, so I hope I'm not on my soapbox for too long here. But I think sometimes that we in the evangelical church of the United States of America we present saving faith in this momentary, cheap way, and the Bible doesn't know anything about that. So here's an example, okay? Years ago, uh, before the fire in paradise, it actually might have been before Vespers even existed, I was pastoring just at our paradise site, and we were involved in this big evangelistic rally that happened a couple of times that was, uh, churches all over the country that were getting involved and like having all these people in for this big rally and it was like this uh, simulcast 
thing from Southern California that all the churches would have up and it would be just this, this huge moment to share the gospel with people, invite them to faith. It was a really awesome thing. And both times they did it, our church was heavily involved. We wanted to support that, we wanted to be a part of it. But I was invited to one of the planning meetings to that and the planning meeting, we were a group of local pastors but we were watching this uh, televised video, these guys in Chicago that were gonna be coaching us a little bit about how to put on this evangelistic rally. And the, the topic for that day was aftercare. Aftercare meaning that after someone makes a decision for Jesus, like it's important for us to connect with them, to help them get involved at the local church, to help them uh, meet neighbors that are believers, to allow them to grow and not be this island, you know, isolated in their new faith. A, a really noble thing, a very important thing. But in the course of this meeting, as I'm listening to the guy from Chicago on the screen talking about it, I realized that his understanding of saving faith was way different than mine. Because he said something that was so bizarre to me. He said, you know, what we're doing in talking about aftercare is we're, like, he said, envision this scenario. He said, there's somebody at the rally that makes a decision for Christ and they're gonna get this little index card that has their name and the date and this checked box that says, today I decided to follow Jesus. And they're gonna get to take that home with them and have that at their house. But he said, imagine they put that in their desk drawer and forget about it, forget about their decision to follow Christ. And 10 years later, they're cleaning out their house and they pull it out and they're like, oh, oh yeah, I remember. I, I decided to follow Christ 10 years ago. And the guy said, it's believers like that that we want to serve better. Believers like that. And in that moment, I, I realized like, oh my gosh, this guy's conception of saving faith is a checkbox on an eight by 10 index card that you put in your desk and forget about for 10 years. That's not saving faith. Belief, the belief that we see Abraham have and the belief that we're invited into in the gospel is something enduring. It's not a momentary decision. It's something that we lean into believing and embracing and trusting and following Christ each and every day. And if we think about faith as like, you made a decision in 2001, you haven't thought about it for 20 years, but that's okay. We're presenting people with a version of faith that the Bible doesn't know. And I know that pastor would probably clap back at me and say, Josh, the Romans that you're preaching through says, if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart and Jesus is Lord, you are saved. Amen, brother. But what is that belief? Is that belief raising my hand for two minutes in an altar call moment and never thinking about it again? Or is that the belief of Abraham who continued to lean in to trusting God over a long stretch of time? I think it's the latter. And I'm sharing this with you guys and sort of taking all my time talking about this because I would imagine even in a small church like ours, there are people here that when they think about their relationship with Jesus, all it is to them is a moment from 10 years ago 
That doesn't affect their life in any way. And I don't want you to be deluded into thinking that that's saving faith. Authentic faith is something that happens constantly as we lean in, trust, embrace, and follow Jesus day by day. Don't mistake it for anything else. I need to lighten the mood, so let's go to the second contrast. Saving faith is resilient, not fragile. Mm. What verse shall we read to see this? Oh, how about, actually, let's read verse 19, the funny verse. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Listen, 25 years of waiting for God's promise means a lot of time to consider everything about your circumstances that aren't adding up. It's a lot of time to look at your uh, aging body and say, I don't think I'm gonna have a kid. It's a lot of time to consider your wife who continues to struggle with fertility. It's a lot of time to see all the other families around you that are having bunches of kids and not stopping, (laughs) making it even more glaring that you don't have any children. It's a lot of time maybe even to hear the whispers and the, the mocking and the laughter behind your back as other families say, Abraham and Sarah, what's wrong with them? Abraham had a lot of time to consider all the things that were stacked against him, or more specifically, all the things that were stacked against God's promise coming true in his life. But the point the scripture makes tonight is that he did not let go of trusting and believing what God had said. Even though circumstances around him, even though the world was beating him up, his circumstances were awful, he was probably anxious and worried and frustrated all the time, he kept on believing. Now, you guys that know the story of Abraham and Jesus, you're probably thinking to yourself, you're like, Josh, what? Abraham was a knucklehead. He, he, he multiple times tried to take the promise into his own hands, and he did some really stupid stuff. True. No doubt about it. However, it seems like what the Bible is telling us is, is in the broad scheme of his life, the overarching principle was that Abraham kept believing even when the circumstances around him should have made him quit. Here's the point. I think sometimes our belief in God is purely contingent on whether things are going well for us or not. Whether our circumstances are stacked for us or against us. And We're all good believing in God and his goodness and his faithfulness when the tragedy strikes somewhere else, but when it hits in our own backyard, we we fall apart. Our faith crumbles like, you know, a Jenga tower that had the bottom block taken out of it. And I'm even praying for the persecuted church today. We we know, we're, we're mentally aware that there is extreme persecution happening in other parts of the world, but it's not until we experience persecution that we say, where is God? How could he let this happen? 
that kind of faith and belief is a fragile faith and belief. And what I'm presenting to you tonight, and what I hope you see in Abraham's story, is saving faith is not fragile like that. It's not a faith that's contingent upon how peaceful our life is or how well our circumstances, oh, that's not right, how good our circumstances are. It's able to, to hold fast to God and, and cling to him even when things are hard or frustrating, even when we've been wounded or hurt. And, and as a matter of fact, there's this really curious phrase, it was in the verse that we read a few minutes ago in verse 20, it says that, that Abraham grew strong in his faith over time. Have you ever seen that in somebody's life that when extreme uh, suffering comes into a Christian's life, it either seems to do one of two things. It either makes that person hate God and turn away, or somehow, way, it actually draws that person closer to God. The way that... Uh, the pastor I used to work with years ago used to put it, Pastor Tom, he would say, it either makes our hearts frozen towards God or it either thaws our hearts towards God. And apparently, in Abraham's life, as he grew stronger in his faith through time, it made him warmer towards God. It drew him closer. And, and, and saving faith that clings fast to God's promises isn't something that lives or dies based on the circumstances around you. It lives or dies based on the character of God who stays true to his word no matter what. That's authentic faith that's resilient and not fragile. Okay, so the last one I had is... Well, that authentic faith is rude, not polite. Um, here's where I'm coming from with this. You're going to roll your eyes and think this is the stupidest thing ever, but it's too late. I'm committed. So when I was a kid, my first lesson in etiquette, all right, was not like which one was the salad fork and which one was the soup spoon. I still don't know those things. My first lesson in etiquette was, Josh, it is rude to stare at people in public. I imagine that was my first lesson in etiquette because I did that a lot. I actually vividly remember being in uh, the Burger King and uh, Babers, where are you at? Silva, North Carolina. Yeah, there you guys are. You guys know Silva, North Carolina. The Burger King in Silva, North Carolina, and like just staring down this person that like had poured a milkshake all over themselves. And my mom being like, Josh, you know, she's a Southern belle. She says, it is impolite to stare at strangers in public. She must have told me that a lot because I took that to heart. And so now, like, you know, preaching to you guys, I try to share the eye contact with you all. I don't want to stare down one person. I, I try to, you know, just give a glance to things, like see a lot out of my periphery. I don't want to stare. It's rude. But when it comes to authentic saving faith, throw that etiquette book out the window because you are supposed to stare. You are supposed to fix your eyes on God and his goodness and faithfulness and not look away no matter what. 
You are supposed to stare down what he's done for you in Jesus Christ and just look laser beams into that. Even though it's rude, even though it's impolite to stare in public, your eyes are fixed on Jesus and you ain't looking nowhere else. In fact, the last few lines of our text today, it talks about what we look at when we stare down God in faith. We look at this, that the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead. That's the end of verse 24. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In your mind, in your heart, in your spirit, you are looking at that. The Jesus Christ who gave his body and his blood for you. The God, the Father, who in his faithfulness raised Jesus from the dead. And when you take those two things together, Jesus' death and resurrection, that it means that you're justified. You're justified that God looks at you as holy and blameless just as he looks like Je at Jesus. That's what your eyes are fixed on. And interestingly enough, that actually drives everything that we've talked about today. Why is it that Abraham could wait for two and a half decades and not give up? His eyes were fixed on the God who's faithful. Why is it that Abraham could hold on to belief even though everything around him was falling apart, his circumstances were terrible, people were laughing at him? Because he wasn't looking at them. He was looking at his God who is faithful to his promises. And so in the same way, for us, the bedrock of our saving, authentic faith is that we've got our eyes set on God. We've got our eyes set on Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. We've got our eyes set on the Holy Spirit who applies the work of Jesus to our life, and we don't look anywhere else. So, etiquette, throw it out the window. Be rude. Stare. Set your eyes on the faithfulness of God in Jesus and don't look away. That's faith. And that's all I have from this text. So let's pray. Oh, Father, help us to set our eyes on you and your faithfulness and not look away. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.